Hello, and welcome to the Granta Podcast. I'm Saskia Vogel. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Lena Wolf, author of the story collection Monga Menechodar Sundu, or Many People Die Like You. We talked about her story in the magazine, the process she went through to adapt the tone of her piece, how she translated the landscape into prose, bridging Sweden and Spain, and the feeling of being an outsider. So I have the great pleasure of sitting here with uh, Lina Wolf, who has contributed to our travel issue. And what makes this conversation extra special is that um, I've translated her story. And I think it's been a, an interesting first experience for both of us. It's Lina's first story published in English, and it happens to be my debut as a translator as well. So I guess in honor of this collaboration, I'd, I've asked Lina to read... Um, a paragraph of her story in Swedish, and she's asked me to read some of her story in English. So, um, Lina, please let us let us hear. Okay. En gång träffade jag en författare som sa att han inte längre orkade vara författare. Det var på en fest i Madrid, och jag minns inte hur han där, men det var på Gaiventur och La Vega, så jag antar att det var någon jag lärt känna samma kväll som hade tagit med mig dit. Mina egna vänner i den utsträckning jag alls hade några bodde på helt andra ställen. Om man är fattad på riktigt så går det inte att sluta bara sådär, sa jag. Jag måste, sa han då. För jag känner att jag graviterar mot galenskapen. Och den dag jag inte graviterar mot galenskapen så graviterar jag mot något ännu värre. Vad, sa jag. Han sa att det visste han inte. Men han hade fru och barn att tänka på. Och vad det gällde galenskap så trodde han, precis som Roberto Bolaño, att den var smittsam. Fantastic, thank you so much. Now, um, we had been talking a bit about the idea of tone and how stories are read and you you mentioned that you have a specific way of think of you have a very clear idea of how the story and the character sound in your head and um kind of explain to us how you chose to re- uh, read your story like with, with with what kind of intonation uh well i think that when i started to write it, this this story i it, it came from a kind of uh, epidemic urge i i i had the landscape that i wanted to describe and I wanted to penetrate in some way because I began with one scene I think many writers do that when they write a short story you have one scene that you want to do something with but you might not know from the beginning exactly how this scene can be put in in a context Mm -hmm. and um, this uh, landscape which um, is uh, how to say the center of this short story it's a Spanish uh, hinterland so it's a very dry landscape it's uh, an apparently dead landscape but it's not dead but it looks dead it's a harsh landscape and uh, it's uh, it made a great impression on me and I think that in some way I wanted to reflect this uh, harshness in Mm. the tone so when I hear this story inside of myself and when I wrote it it was not uh, how to say it was not a friendly tone of voice that I heard. It was a quite um, um, not tired, but um, in Swedish there is a wonderful word which is lutrad, which I don't know how to translate. But uh, like a voice that been that been through quite many things, but uh, tries to uh, to. To not to 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 not get bitter or tired of life, I have <laughs> to say, <laughs> to keep the force. And um, 
so that that's how 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 I uh, I heard this tone and then um, well I think I normally write quite um, I mean I'm not a I'm, I, I don't mm, I don't uh, try to have a poetic expression hmm. uh, I mean if 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 it becomes poetic it's because uh, it it just turns out that way it's not something that I am striving towards um, I like I like writers who who manage to have some poetry in their text but you feel it's not the intention of the writing like for example Roberto Bolaño which I consider a very poetic writer but you can feel that it's not his intention your story is um, set between Madrid and Granada there's a, a new mother who ends up on a sort of odd trip with um, I think you describe it as people who have something a bit wrong with them, people who are not well. She ends up on a bus trip to the Alhambra and then has an encounter with a kind of a dark specter. And there's a sort of within the story there's this interesting tension as well between the, the new mother being a Swedish mother who's a stranger in a way, or a foreigner in Spain, and in a, there's a kind of wonderful sense of, of outsideness, and I, I wonder, um, there's, there's also a tension between, I guess, a rational way of being and a kind of more magical way of thinking that seems to come from the, the Spanish end, and I, tell me a little bit about piecing that together, I guess, the, the Swedishness, the Spanishness. I think that is what I am working with all the time. I mean, during this this part of my life, uh, I am working with a Spanish experience, and I am uh, writing about it, and um, I'm thinking a lot about it still. And uh, I mean, I think you can say that I come from a rational family in a rational country. Mm. Mm, my dad is a scientist, my mother is a psychologist, and uh, there has always been an explanation for everything in my home, um, so I'm. I was fascinated by by this um, um, craziness, if you can say that in English, uh, that I mm, that I could feel in Spain, uh, uh, that I could feel as a part, a very natural part of, especially the artistic temperament in Spain. Uh, even though in this story I don't have some. Um, fancy literary guide like uh, Lorca or so, mm. but I have a bus full of mentally more or less healthy people, less healthy people I would say, <laughs> and uh, I, would, I was reading um, Robert McFarlane's um, uh, story in Granta and then uh, I was thinking about that because in literature when you read about travels in literature, for example uh, Dante when he's going down to the Inferno, he has Virgilius as a guide, and when he's going to Paradise, he has Beatrice as a guide. So, in uh, Robert McFarlane's text, I mean, he talks about this that um, literary travelers normally have a guide, and I think that my my protagonist she also has her guides, but they are a bunch of more or less, uh, mentally more or less healthy people in a brown old bus uh, crossing La Mancha, <laughs> and. Um, I think they actually uh, make it possible to cross this border from a more rational viewpoint and from a more rational way of uh, looking at the world around to to this more irrational 
because when they come to, to this um, church, I should say that perhaps uh, Nuestra Señora Asunción, my protagonist actually sees uh, the death angel. So that is a quite, a, from a Swedish viewpoint at least, irrational um, part of the story. And um, and when 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 I when I think about these things, I think about uh, what um, a Spanish poet Lorca, when he was talking about a very Spanish artistic concept that is called duende, mm. and duende can be translated like troll or black spirit or something um, very essential for the artistic temperament, and it's very irrational. And uh, I could actually read what Lorca said about this. It's just a few lines. She says, The duende is a power, not a work. It's a struggle, not a thought. I have heard an old maestro of the guitar say, The duende is not in the throat. The duende climbs up inside you from the soles of the feet. Meaning, it is not a question of ability, but of true living style, of blood, of the most ancient culture, of spontaneous creation. Fantastic. This is this is uh, lovely, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, this um, this this uh, side of the Spanish culture fascinated me a lot. And so you've been. Um, it's like the main character in your story. You've also been a new mother in Spain, and I guess I'm interested in how you came to choose uh, Spain as the setting of not just this story, but also your novel, uh, Bread Easton Ellis and the Other Dogs, is also partly set in Spain, right? Completely, I think. Completely? Yes, completely. Uh, different parts of Spain, but uh, yes, it's completely set in Spain, yes. Go, okay, good. Mm. <laughs> the short story collection is not. <laughs> right, oh, no. maybe that's what I'm thinking of as yeah. well. So how, how did you come to, I guess... Make, make Spain your the, the home of many of your stories? Um, well, I think in the beginning it was uh, a crisis. I started to write because I felt a need to fit in and to not be an outsider because I don't look very Spanish and nobody ever thought I came from Spain. So I have felt bound to some kind of outsideness and uh, otherness that is very uncomfortable and sometimes very painful when you are experiencing it. Uh, afterwards, when you can, uh, how to say, digest your experience, it can actually be an a asset. And mm. when you write, you almost depend on some kind of uh, outsideness. So I started to write some of my short stories from um, a very Spanish perspective. I pretended I was Spanish and uh, I was in a Spanish context. and. Um, I was not Swedish and I never even mentioned Sweden in my short story. <laughs> so I think it was a way to, to, to create another dimension where I could be like them. I think there is a need for a person, even if you come to a culture that you don't feel that you sympathize with completely, but your, your aim and your desire is still to be part of it. So when I wrote, I could, um, in a quite relaxed and playful way, actually be a very natural part of the mm. Spanish culture. It's really, it's really interesting. Um, and I, I think that, how, how has your work been received, I guess, or 
discussed out outside of Sweden. I, I imagine that everybody is a bit um, over overloaded with the Scandinavian crime narrative, which which paints a very specific and also supporting the rational side of Sweden in a way because of the structures of order and justice. But you know, it's it's refreshing to read, you know, work from Sweden that that addresses a completely different kind of experience, but also one that feels, as, as a Swede myself, essentially Swedish, the sort of outward engagement with the world and the desire to, to leave Sweden and, and in a way re it learn to inhabit another culture. I feel like that was something that was so present in, in I guess, the national character, not just to think of, you know, our beautiful York birch forests <laughs> and, um, you know, lakes and and peaks and whatnot yes so i understand i i i um i uh, i have nothing against some kind of um, of some crime literature i think there are really good crime literature like um um, I started to write actually because I I, I read Patricia Highsmith. Oh, nice. I think she's a <laughs> wonderful uh, crime writer, and uh, well, Dostoevsky can also be said to be a wonderful crime writer. But um, I think what they do they they do not really focus on the on the intrigue or the plot, but they focus on something very human. They mm. focus on a human dilemma. So the plot is always secondary, and I think that 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 can really, perhaps, be be uh, a condition for for good crime literature. So, um, uh, I I I I don't have anything against crime, but if if it's a book that is mainly mm, constructed on a plot, uh, it's really difficult for me to feel interest mm. uh, in reading it. And. Um, I want to feel a curiosity about the language, and especially I want to feel also the curiosity about um, how this writer conceives the world, uh, or how do you say that? No, not conceive. How this writer understands the world, yeah. or at least the protagonist, because there is always a difference between the writer and and the and the storyteller. Sure. It's not really um, the same thing. Uh, so, mm, well, to, to get back to your question, uh, since it hasn't been translated yet, um, I don't know really what <laughs> what the, what they would say uh, if um, a Spanish reader, for example, I would be very curious to know that. In in the sort of um, landscape of of Swedish literature uh, within Sweden, um, I mean, you you've. Uh, you you you've won some wonderful awards, and I actually don't know what happened with your was it the Swedish radio award? Uh, well, I got the V reward, mm -hmm. which is a Swedish magazine, and then I was nominated and finalist in the radio uh, novel prize. Oh, fantastic! Yeah. Congratulations! <laughs> I don't know if I knew what, uh, no, what I happened with that, but so you know, you you sit in a beautiful place in contemporary Swedish literature, you know. And I kind of wonder, I guess, um, are your peers writing about similar themes, or can one not make, should I not be asking you to make, generalizations? For example, the, the two Swedish books I picked up recently, uh, the titles, both of which I'm forgetting, but one was about a, um, a non-fiction book about a, a woman married to a diplomat or an aid worker of some sort, and her life as a Swedish woman in, I believe, South Asia. And then another story was a very quiet Swedish family story about the um, the cracks under an otherwise perfect surface. And yes. I I don't know. I do. Do you feel that 
What, where do you feel you sit in the kind of matrix of contemporary Swedish literature? Uh, I, I am. Um, I, I, I must confess that uh, I, I, I work as a reader, and uh, I read a lot of Spanish and South American literature. And um, when I can choose what to read, I normally reread what I already read. So I read a lot of uh, Bolaño, and I read. Um, uh, I also read uh, Borges. I, I read. Um, Juna Barnes, I think she's wonderful, a wonderful writer to read when you're writing because of the metaphors and her. Um, yes, she's <laughs> she's a lovely writer, and, and I, I love to reread what I already read, and um, and now I'm reading uh, Bolaño in uh, some Italian translations. Uh, so I haven't had so much time to to um, to to uh, go in depth with the contemporary Swedish literature. Uh, I'm also reading in this moment uh, Selma Lagerlöf, um, which is um, also a Swedish writer. Uh, she got the Swedish, uh, she got the Nobel Prize in, in 1909. And um, if I'm going to make some parallel to, to what we were talking about in the Spanish culture with uh, the more mystic influence, mm. I think she's one of the Swedish writers who really works with the that kind of influence, and uh, she also works a lot with nature and landscape, and you can always see the reflection of uh, the landscape in what she's writing about her characters. Astrid Lindgren is a writer, the writer who wrote Pippi Longstocking, who also in, in a number of her children's stories, you know, channels a kind of, I don't know, a mystical element of, of Swedish nature, the, the Swedish landscape, and, and kind of, you know, will, will transport you through other realms and um, and I one of the things that surprised me the most about Sweden was a, a sort of strong its strong connection to in a way a sort of pagan past I guess something that really struck me was the the Easter celebrations where the children dress up as witches in order to fool the witches that come from Blokula who will otherwise snatch them and take them away and that there was this Next to the rational, there was also this wonderful past that was filled with kind of lore and, in a way, a magical sensibility. Is that something that you relate very much to, or do you think there is a kind of, shall we say, Latin American strand that, that has an undercurrent in, in the Swedish culture through its older myths? Well, I think it's it's interesting when you see how uh, the influence of nature can can uh, uh, inspire writers. Uh, for example, uh, Selma Lagerlöf that I was talking about, she actually inspired the Mexican writer Juan Rulfo mm -hmm. uh, to write uh, some. Well, he, she ins I don't I don't think she inspired him to write Pedro Paramo, but uh, uh, he has said in an interview that he was inspired by her way of uh, reflecting nature. And considering the completely different landscapes that Selma Lagerlöf and Juan Rulfo work with, uh, there is still the, this um, this very strong influence of, of nature. And I think in Sweden, uh, or at least the part of Sweden where I come from, which is southern Sweden, we have a wonderful beech woods and the oak woods. Uh, but it's a foggy landscape, and um, it's a landscape where you can't see so far because there are always trees or fog. So it's a bit mystical, I would say. Mm. Uh, and coming to Spain, this was... Um, uh, the first place I came to, came to was Madrid. So it was in the middle of Spain, and it was complete darkness or complete light. 
there were no shadows and uh, there were no um, in Sweden, there is, in Swedish, there is a word, a gränsland, mm. with a twilight zone, okay. what you say. Um, you can find this in some places of Spain, the northern part, like Galicia, where it's more foggy and more rainy. Um, but uh, it's, it's very different. And I think um, um, that is also uh, perhaps reflecting the relation to reality, how you perceive reality. Mm. Uh, where I come from, things can be doubted. I mean, doubt is actually quality. If you are able to doubt on something, you are able to look at it from one side and then from the other side. While as if you don't have any doubt, which was sometimes my experience when I lived in Spain, that, that people knew very well what is right and what is wrong and how things are going to be. Um, you have to you have to um, become another person to, to, to face that. And I think that that is the, um, how to say, uh, transformation that I had to go through to, to live in Spain, to become much more sure of what I wanted to express and, um, and uh, uh, also try not to see things all the time on, on this related uh, under this r related light hmm. um, and uh, then you then you change as a person you start to write a book and you go through this process and when you finish you are actually a little bit somebody else <laughs> <laughs> I guess <laughs> and um, there's if I may say um, quite quite a lot of your exper personal experiences of, of Spain initially in 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 the story in Granta this um, do, do you want to talk about the autobiographical elements or would you like to leave it alone? No, no, I, I, <laughs> I can talk about that. Fantastic. Um, the, the beginning of the text is actually about a woman who is uh, spending a lot of time home uh, with a little child. And uh, I did that too. So I borrowed that part to the story from my own life. Uh, and um, my situation was uh, that I had to go as 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 a as a mother, you have to go out with your little child every day. In Spain, you go out like eleven o'clock in the morning, and you you go down to the park and you you meet with other women. Um, my problem was when I came down to the park with my little son, there were no women in my own age because all Spanish women were working because you only have four month maternity leave. So. Uh, the grandmothers were there, and they were completely uninterested in me. There were no curiosity towards me. I mean, I came from another country, but that was not anything interesting for them. So I, I went home and I, I said to my hu husband that I feel so, I feel like such an outsider. I don't know how to come in in this context. I don't know how to get the code to communicate with these women. And then he said, well, you have to watch soap operas because <laughs> that's what they do in the mornings. If you want to talk to them, you have to know what they have been seeing on TV in the morning. And I actually started to watch these culebronas, uh, as you call it in Spanish. And, uh, well, I, I, I could talk a little bit more. I, I had to learn Spanish too, of course, but uh, it was actually a way to come into the culture and... Uh, it was uh, it was funny when I when I was there, and um, of course you had to expose yourself also to other 
elements of the Spanish culture, which was uh, sometimes uh, scary because um, I think when you, if you really want to try a cultural uh, adaptation, is that what you say? Uh, you want to expose yourself seriously to another culture, uh-huh. you have to leave uh, what you come from. And for example, in Spain, the if you if you want to be really Spanish in Madrid, you have to go to a bullfight. You have to see a bullfight. Really? Yeah. <laughs> and for me, as a as a Swede, that was just uh, I mean, it's so immoral to, to the bullfighting. And that's a scary thing because if you really want to expose yourself, you also have to expose yourself to what you don't consider right and wrong. And mm-hmm. that's where the scary travel starts. Because who are you after a bullfight? I mean, are, have you been able to see the beauty of it, like Hemingway describes it? Or do you feel like puking? <laughs> if you actually have seen the beauty of it, well, then perhaps you have to change your friends and you have to change your <laughs> life because <laughs> it's... Um, Shall we read a touch of your story in English to give, to give the listeners a flavor yeah, of this it. tension? Um, Once I met a writer who said he couldn't bear to be a writer anymore. It was at a party in Madrid, and I don't remember how I ended up there, but it was on Calle de Ventura de la Vega, so I assume it was someone I met that night who had taken me there. My my own friends, to the extent that I even had any, lived in completely different places. If you really are a writer, you can't stop just like that, I said. I have to, he said then, because I feel... I'm gravitating towards madness. In the days I'm not gravitating towards madness, I gravitate towards something even worse. What? I said. He said he didn't know, but he had his wife and child to think of, and that as far as madness went, he believed, like Roberto Bolaño, that it was contagious. During this time, I didn't go out often. I was newly married and spoke Spanish badly. My son was about a year old, and I was always home. Except every now and again, when my husband returned from his travels, put his bags down in the hall, and looked at me, sitting on the sofa after days glued to the soap operas. I used to toss the caramel wrappers right on the floor, and when I drained the soda cans, I placed them in the bookshelf behind the sofa. The chewed-up gum went in the flower pot on the floor. I must have looked bloated and envious, sitting there on the sofa when my husband came home. He always wore a tie and a glossy suit, and when he stood there with his coal-black Spanish hair... It was as if you could see the world's airports in his eyes. But he never commented on the mess, or that I looked like someone who hadn't washed their hair in a week. He said, Now it's your turn to go out. And he picked up our son, who started to scream. Our son vomited big yellow smears on his suit, but he just laughed and looked happy. Spaniards love children. They are both well-dressed and laid back, and I've always liked the combination. Because I was out so seldom, I sometimes thought I'd forgotten how to talk to people, that the writer who didn't want to be a writer was the first person at the party I exchanged a few words with was to be expected, I thought. I sit at home for weeks, maybe months, and when I finally get out to talk to someone, it's with a writer who thinks he's going mad. After the madness thing, he said, he had the urge for completely unbridled sex. Tengo ganas de sexo desenfrenado, he said. Estoy más salida que el pico de una mesa, he said as well, and exactly what that meant I didn't understand at the time. Where are you from? he asked later. And then I said I came from France. 
Why did I say that? Possibly because people in Latin countries don't really take you seriously when you say you're from Sweden. Or so that he, in his current frame of mind, wouldn't confuse me with some topless swimmer from 1980s Benidorm. I continued to mingle. The next person I spoke with was a woman who introduced herself as Philomena. This is a party for people who have problems, she said. No one here is normal except you, and you're not even from Spain. I asked what she did, and she said that her husband owned a bar. I told her about the writer I had just talked to, and she said she knew him. At this party, almost everyone knew each other, and tomorrow they were taking a coach to Granada, and this was just a pre-party, or not a pre-party, but a kind of run-up. Coach all the way to Granada, I said, and she nodded. Do you have a mobile number? She asked later. It was four in the morning when I got home to the apartment on Calle Embajadores. My husband was asleep with the child in her bed, and I went to sleep on the sofa in the living room so I wouldn't wake them. It was a warm, dark night, an unnatural night, as nights in Madrid are, because Madrid is an unnatural city, situated where no city should be, without natural greenery and water. I remembered something the writer had said, that the most frightening thing about madness is that there isn't an obvious border between being healthy and being sick, that's just how it is, he said. Things that seem strange suddenly feel completely normal. I felt quite well because right then I couldn't think of anything that felt normal. On the contrary, everything in my life seemed very strange and kind of pursed and illogical. I wished I'd said that to the writer. Maybe he would have said I was fine. But on the other hand, if a crazy person tells you you're fine, what does that mean? In my half-drunkenness, I couldn't figure it out. At seven o'clock, Philomena called my mobile. The sun had started to climb, and the sky over Madrid was light blue with airplane trails. From the window, I could see a few dog owners with their dogs in the park. They spoke in small groups while the dogs ran around and peed, even in the sandboxes where children, probably my son too, would play in a few hours. Someone dropped out, Philomena said. You can come with us to Granada. It may not be a luxurious trip, it's organized by the Madrid local authority, but you, being from France, might get a kick out of getting out and seeing a new place. I said I didn't know. My husband got home yesterday. But this is still a great opportunity, she said then. I woke my husband up and asked him what he thought, and he said, of course you should go. One has to see Granada. I packed a little bag, showered quickly, and went down to the street. Grabbed a coffee at a bar, and then the subway to Mendez Alvaro where the coach would be waiting. Everyone from the party stood there, just out of the shower and ready to start the day and the journey. I said hello. The writer was there too, and today he didn't look a bit mad. Tu vas bien, he said, and I answered, mais oui. Then we packed into the coach, and I felt there was something industrial in the way they handled us. The coach was old and brown. This feels kind of like an Almodovar film, I said. The writer and Philomena looked at me blankly. The engine started and the coach began to move. We, dropped, uh, we drove out of Madrid, and there was almost no traffic at all. You could sit and look at the houses in peace. Sometimes I did that when we drove around in our car. I would sit and look at the houses we drove past, feeling something at the bottom of my stomach, a kind of great terror that I was always trying to hold back. When you drove on the circular, you could sometimes see right into people's living rooms. You could see them sitting around tables and eating some 10, 20 meters away. The most fascinating thing about Madrid, I said to the writer who was sitting next to me, 
is the coexistence of so many dimensions. Everything is wall-to-wall, -wall, motorways, living rooms, people from South America, people from Europe. We all live with only a few meters or sometimes only decimeters between us. I, for example, have no idea who sleeps on the other side of my bedroom wall. It's true, said the writer. Everything is curiously put together here. Maybe it feels exotic to someone like you who comes from elsewhere. But all of this coexistence mean that, means that nothing has a real identity, least of all the city itself. We sat in silence for a while. Around Aranjuez, Filomena leaned forward and whispered in my ear that she and the writer had made love after I left the party. Did you? I said. Yes, said Filomena, and he might look harmless, but in bed he becomes... He forces you to do all sorts of things. She shook her hand in front of me as if she had burned herself. I laughed at her. So was it good, though? I said. Good if you were like me, she answered then, because I can be both predator and prey at the same time. Suddenly I didn't feel like laughing anymore. I blushed without knowing why. The writer stared intently out the window. Something that struck me about your story um, is the is the way you fragment sentences, and in the translation in translating it, it was really exciting to work with. I don't know a language that felt so your own. Uh, how did how did you? I don't know. It's a, it's a dubious question, but how did you come to find your style to play with Swedish in the way that you do? Uh, well, um, language when I write has actually been uh, a frustration because uh, I I speak uh, Spanish uh, well, I would say. I speak some Italian and French too. And um, when I think about what I'm going to write, I mean, when I actually write, I sit there and write and I can hear the beginning of the next sentence often, um, then it often comes in another language. And uh, I can just feel that it starts in Spanish or, or sometimes in Italian. I just hear the beginning in another language. And that is so frustrating because I have to make it Swedish. And uh, Spanish is a, a, a wonderful lang language if you want to express force or indignation or uh, some spicy, um, spicy feeling. That sounds <laughs> hot. <laughs> but it has uh, a forcefulness that I wouldn't say that Swe Swedish lacks, but... Um, it's not so spontaneous, perhaps. So then I have to find the compromise. I have to make my Swedish as Spanish as I can, mm -hmm. which is uh, sometimes it's very difficult and sometimes it's, it's very frustrating to find the right expression. And uh, it has been a help for me when I can use um, uh, my dialect. Yeah. Yes. Uh, I come from a village in the middle of Skåne, which is the southern region of Sweden, and it's a peasant village. Uh, um, so we have many very local expressions, and they can be very, very forceful in a way that um, sometimes it strikes me. I can, I can say something in Swedish to you that I heard in the queue in, in the supermarket. There was one guy saying to another, det är så dags att pinka till kvälls när natten är förgången. I can't translate it in English. It basically means hindsight is easier than foresight, but it's expressed in a such a, well, rude manner. With a touch of um, bathroom. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> definitely a touch of bathroom. 
and um, I think uh, perhaps in Swedish, uh, in more uh, regular Swedish, this would be shocking hmm. to have something like this. But in Spanish it wouldn't, because Spanish is much more um, bodily, I would say, hmm. as a language. You use the body a lot. You use obscene terms all the time. And uh, it's very natural. I mean, uh, everybody does it. So uh, you can't do that in Swedish. So you have to find some compromise. Um, and that's what I always struggled with. <laughs> that's so interesting. Well, expressions, I mean, there are some phenomenal Swedish expressions that, you know, are similar to the one you mentioned or uh, different, but there's so few words for, for swearing, yes. I thought. That, and that's something that in, in translation, um, sometimes I, not necessarily in your work, but in, in other pieces that I've started to work on, um, you know, they're all related to the devil and hell yes. and maybe... And, I don't know, in, in English you, you have more room to kind of uh, get angry at somebody or, or be um, dismissive with a touch of vulgarity, I guess. Um, and I, I'm wondering, with, with Spain, is it a sort of Catholic legacy and sort of the, that the reaction will be to, to, to have a very bodily, everyday language and maybe sort of a different legacy in Sweden that leads towards... You know, I mean, swear words around the devil imply a certain kind of, you know, the, the, the severity of punishment, I suppose. Or yes, it could be. On, on the other hand, when, when you say this, uh, it strikes me that if you actually say, like, jävlar or something like that in Swedish, it might sound quite forceful, hmm. depending on who says it and the way you says it, the way you say it. But in Spanish, there are expressions like, me uh, cago en la leche. I don't know if you speak Spanish, but that means like, I will shit in the milk, which is so <laughs> horrible. And, and, and the first time I, I heard my husband say that, he, you can't say that, it's awful. It's like, and what did I say? He didn't even know, he didn't know he had said something. And then, of course, I heard it all the time. Me cago en la leche. And I, I think that um, some, some people in Spain, I have been so impressed by the way of speaking because they can have a very, very good language a very good register and then they have this very very spicy and vulgar expressions so it's a lovely contrast hmm. and that is much more difficult to achieve in Swedish uh, and if you want to do it literary well uh, it, it's, it's definitely difficult and I, I, don't, I don't know the, 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 the origins but, but uh, it's true I think our, 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 our spicy expressions are, are very biblical hmm. actually <laughs> Thinking about kind of you starting your life as a writer in Spain at a Spanish writing course and also thinking about translation, I mean, I think one of the great pleasures of entering a language from the outside is, is the kind of aliveness, the wake, awakeness you have to these, you know, strange strands of, of expression that seem normal to others but, but will strike your ears in a, in a, very, in a very particular way. It's, it's something that I... These tensions, I've enjoyed them so much in your story, the way Thank your you. story will shift and, um, I don't know, build and also tease out how, how Swedes are perceived in Spain and how this outsider is perceiving the situation and understanding and negotiating her identity in, in, in this place. It's beautifully wrought. Thank you. Um, 
Um, so sh thank you so much for coming in today and thank uh, you for having me. It's, it's been very nice. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Granted Podcast, available on iTunes, SoundCloud, and selected British Airways flights. To subscribe to Granta, go to www.granta.com. <laughs>